Today on the Avenue Podcast, we have the pleasure of being here with Vince Hayfley, the president of Ajax Industries. Great to have you here, Vince. Thank you. I'm glad for the invite. Absolutely. So today we're going to be talking about some of the taboos of the construction industry, uh, something that uh, is very near and dear to Vince's heart. So Vince, can we start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, You want me to begin in the beginning? or uh, I've been in the industry for 38 years. I started in 1985 driving a wheelbarrow and have kind of progressed up the ranks. Uh, I landed at Ajax Paving in 02. I came in as their quality control manager. Uh, became general manager of the company in 04, VP in 07. Took over as the company president in 19, uh, the capacity I still serve in. Uh, we have about 500 employees based in here in Sarasota, but we're up in Tampa, Fort Myers, uh, Lake Wales. Uh, we're uh, mainly a highway paving contractor, uh, produce a lot of asphalt, family-owned company. And you guys are also up north as well, right? There's an Ajax Paving Industries out of Michigan. Uh, that was the parent company. Um, in 1981, Herb Jacobs, which was the founder of Ajax Michigan, uh, asked a man by the name of Mike Horan if he would like to go down and start a Ford Operations. They had an opportunity with uh, another Michigan contractor that had come down and needed someone to do some paving for him. So Mike came down in 81, set up an asphalt plant, and began uh, producing asphalt in early 82. And uh, Mike became the owner of Ajax Florida fully in uh, June of 22. So we were one company, but we are two separate companies now, but we still work like one company. We share some resources, IT and type things, and we still collaborate on some projects together. But... uh, I came to work working for the Jacobs family, and now I work for the Haran family. Got it. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. We appreciate it. So today we're talking about one of the taboos of the construction industry, and it's not always the easiest subject to talk about because it's not one of the happiest subjects to talk about. Um, so I want to start off by you know asking you, in your past, you had stood at one point in front of nearly 2,000 people talking about your you know, unfortunate past with, as it relates to suicide. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that came to be and kind of uh, ease us into this difficult subject? Of how I became suicidal or how we came to that day when I stood in front of 2000 or that whole journey? <laughs> I think it's to have an understanding a little okay. bit about the journey that led up to that, uh, okay. to that conversation. Um, I would like to think that I'm the man that most people would point to their children and say, God, if you could have a life like he's had and a career like he's had, that's what you should strive for. And that's what people saw on the outside. Um, I had in my childhood a very tight-knit family, small, a brother, mother, and father. Uh, we had camping trailers. Uh, we water skied together. We had horses. We rode motorcycles together. Everything we did was a family unit that was who I shared with, who I talked with, got guidance from. Mm-hmm. Um, in May of 1989, I learned that my brother, which was nine years my senior, uh, was terminally ill. In July, two months later, my father passed. And in November and December, my wife and I lost twin sons. Um, so I did what I was raised by my family to do. My mother always said, your mind's a tough thing. Just tell yourself you're fine and get over it and move on. 
My dad always told me that if you tell people you're crazy or, or you're struggling, they'll take you to Anna Jonesboro. Anna Jonesboro was the town about 60 miles from where I grew up, and that's where the mental hospital was. And they'll put you in there, and they'll lock you up, and they won't let you out. I'm now also, at that time, working in the construction industry on the engineering side, but yet I'm in construction. Um, my career is on an upward trajectory, so I did what men in my industry think they're supposed to do. Um, I stood outside at my father's funeral and told family and friends he's better off. He's no longer in pain. Uh, he's no longer suffering. And my, my goodness, he lived to be 59 years old. How much longer should a person live anyway? Um, yet on the inside, I was devastated. Uh, I really don't believe in the word hero because I'm not sure what that means other than I think it can set people up for failure. Mm -hmm. But my dad was probably the closest thing I ever had to a hero. Mm -hmm. He was a blue-collar guy. He was a... He worked in underground coal mines. He worked on cars. He uh, worked on a drill rig looking for coal for a period of his life. Heavily blue-collar mother was blue-collar, worked in a dress factory when I was a little kid, eventually owned her own business, but blue-collar family. Um, so in that industry and in the people, you don't share your emotions. I, I couldn't talk or I didn't think I could talk to what soon became after that, a while after that, my ex-wife about how I was struggling because hey, she lost the twins too. Yeah. And she actually carried them to birth, gave birth, and they eventually passed. So when I say I didn't talk to anyone, I didn't talk to anyone. And then in 1993, on my niece's fifth birthday, that was my brother and daughter. That was the day my brother passed. He had just turned 40. So now... On that day, we celebrate a birth and we celebrate a loss. And about that same time, we learned that my mother was terminally ill, and she was soon gone. So by the time I was 33 years old, all of that tight-knit family that gave me guidance and that I could talk to were gone. Um, and I didn't talk to anyone. So fast forward, my mother passed in about 95. Fast forward to 2005, 2000. And Six, my career, I said I had become a general manager at Ajax by then. In 2007, I became the vice president of the company. Uh, professionally, I felt like a rock star. I couldn't do anything wrong. Personally, I felt like a complete failure. I didn't feel like I could do anything right in my life. So after a day at work in 07 and coming home and sitting and having dinner with my wife, son, and daughter, um, we talked, the kids got up and went to their rooms and something happened that night. And what I think it was is that I loaded the dishwasher wrong because I could never in my mind load the dishwasher right. I would put the dishes in and I would get told I did it wrong or they would get moved. And so it just became a nightly failure, just a little thing, oh. <clears throat> but it, it set me off that night and I left the house. And I was driving behind our asphalt plant where I worked, down off of Jean Green Road or right around the corner that we were talking about a while ago, not even far from here. And I received a phone call from my wife at the time, and she said, we know where you're going, we know what you're going to do, and your son's on his way. So I did what I was supposed to do. I did what I was raised to do. I laughed and I joked. 
and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm out for a ride. I'll be home in a few minutes. I went home. I walked into the house, went to bed, and got up the next day and went to work like nothing ever happened. Um, but that day went different. I sat down at my desk, and I pulled open my drawer. I had four letters in there that I had written to my key employees. Uh, these were letters thanking them for making me the success that I was. Because, again, professionally, I was, I was a star. Uh, but more importantly, it was me trying to tell them that my deciding to leave shouldn't weigh on them. They had done nothing wrong. Hmm. They didn't miss any signs. Uh, it was just my way of getting the pain, getting the suffering, the end that I couldn't figure out how to get rid of. So 07 professionally was the best year of my life. Became vice president. Ajax picked up the largest contract ever let by the Florida Department of Transportation that year. It was even better than 2019 when I became president because it was my first introduction into the C-suite. We had a huge contract. Yet personally, it was the worst year of my life. Um, I was on two different tracks. Yeah. I was on the <clears throat> track that all the people at work and everyone around me thought I was probably the happiest guy in the world. Yet I was miserable and didn't share that with anyone. That's how I got to that night. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. It's uh, it's obviously very sobering, and I'm sure that given the industry that we're in, it's as you said, really a, a very difficult subject because a lot of people are facing this this issue and do not or feel like they cannot talk about it, and therefore do not talk about it, and it can lead to obviously being in a similar situation. Yes. So let's talk a little bit more about why you decided to speak about this. Obviously, you had your own past, uh, say, family, you know, difficulties, and you, you dealt with a lot of uh, suffering in the past. What really made you want to go out and help others that were facing the same issues? So 07 came and passed, and uh, 08, uh, the marriage ended. Um, I eventually remarried. And from 07... Until 2021, only three people knew of that night. Um, or I thought only three people knew. Uh, my wife and son. Uh, I eventually found out in 2022 that my daughter knew. Um, and I also learned in 2022 what a negative impact it had on both my kids' lives because we never talked about it. Mm -hmm. So um, I enroll at the University of South Florida in the doctoral program starts in January of 21. And in June of 21, I tell one of the professors there that I want to research frontline leadership. I want to study why we take the great tradesmen and we make them the boss and they fail. They have all the hard skills of how to run the rower or the paver. And we think since they're good at that, they can manage people. And um, he kind of looked at me and laughed, and he said, that's a weak and that's lame. Go find something better. I pushed back, and I told him, well, no, I've done the research, and there's nothing there on it. He said, yeah, there is. They did it in the medical profession. They studied why they take great physicians and make them hospital administrators, and not all of them make great administrators. So he said, go, go change it. Go find something better, he told me. So I went home and I, I thought, and I had written a paper that I published and presented at a conference over in India, and the hook line in that paper was suicide and construction. And I talked to him about that, and he said, well, that would be powerful if you could do something with that. So that was in June of 21, and in July of 21, I'm sitting in our office, with, we have a Friday meeting, 
16 of the, the key leaders in the company. And I told them that on January 3rd of 2022 at our annual safety day, I was going to stand up in front of the company and tell them we were going to begin addressing mental health and suicide in the company. And, and I talked to them a little bit about the why behind it. And um, for whatever reason that day, I decided to tell those 16 people about that night in 07. Um, so when I started talking and getting into the story, I could have dropped a feather on the floor and you could have heard the feather hit the floor. There was no, there was no communication. There was no dialogue. There was no conversation. It was simply me talking and a lot of blank faces. And I even looked at two of the people in the room and said, two of those four letters were for you. Still no conversation. Hey, and I get it. I don't hold any animosity, uh, no hard feelings for them because it took me 14 years to say what I said. Yeah. And in four minutes, I can't expect them to want to jump in on the conversation, right? right? So I, I finished and I said, hey, that's all I've got for you. And they all got up and left the room. And wow. I just kind of sat there um, motionless and just drained mentally. Um, so fast forward to October now of 21 and I'm sitting in the backyard and I got tears in my eyes and Stacy, my wife now of 13 years, um, looks at me and says, what's wrong? And I told her, I said, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story that I probably should have told you before I told 16 people at work. The timing's everything in life and this is kind of how it played out. And so I told her and when I finished, she said, how do you feel now? And I said, I feel like a weight of bricks has been lifted off of my shoulder since I've told people. Um, so January 3rd comes, I get up in front of over 400 people, safety day up in Bradenton, and I tell them, we're going to begin this journey. I said, you know, I've been there before. I didn't go into any details. I simply said I'd been there before. And within hours of the meeting ended, I began to receive emails and telephone calls from employees. One superintendent called me and he said, thank you for today. He said, I've had an operator on the crew that for months I felt like something just been a little off. But I didn't know, should I talk to him? Could I talk to him? How, How would I talk to him? He said, but after we left the meeting today, we had a conversation. And he says, yeah, I need help. And he's going to go get some. That's amazing. He came back to our July major meeting and he said, what you did on January 3rd saved my marriage and saved my career. Wow. So, you know, that kind of fueled the fire a little bit. And then in March of 22, I did a uh, webinar with the women of asphalt. And, hey, you can go find that webinar and you can listen. And uh, I babbled like a baby through it at times. It was emotionally hard because that's the first time outside of my inner circle. And even though we had over 400 employees, they're all like family. Right. It was the first time I had ever gone outside of that and told my story to anyone. And there were a lot of women in there that are national figures that I have the utmost respect for. And so they're all hearing this for the first time. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking, what are they thinking? Yeah. What's their opinion of me going to be now? So that ends. And again, <laughs> Within an hour, not hours, I get a call from a lady in Connecticut. And I get a call from a lady out in the state of Washington. Um, I get a call from the lady that leads the Asphalt Pavement Alliance. 
I get a call from the lady that runs the National Asphalt Pavement. And they're all wanting me to know what an impact that had on them and how powerful it was. So that talk then led to more talks. I've spoken in person, not including podcasts or LinkedIn, but I mean face-to-face in rooms with over 10,000 people since wow. February. One person on LinkedIn has had something to say negative. Everybody else has been completely supportive, uh, understanding. All the feeling that I thought that people would thought I was weak, that thought I didn't have any control over my life, has been just complete opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, people perceive me as being a, forget being the president of Ajax, just being a stronger person mm-hmm. by being able to say something and by being able to, to maybe make a change in our industry. Um, so let me hit on the industry real quick. So why are we even talking about this as an issue? Mm-hmm. Nationally, the most recent numbers, 14.1 people out of every 100,000 in the U.S. will try to take their life by suicide. That's everyone. In construction, if you're an iron worker, that number is not 14.1, it's 70. If you're a laborer, that number is about 65. If you're a construction manager, it's about 45. In all construction trades nationwide today, we'll lose two to three workers to job-related fatalities. They may be hit by a car that intrudes into a work zone. They may be buried in a trench collapse. They may fall off of a high-rise, two to three. And yet today, in that same industry, we will lose 10 to 15 to suicide. We lose a worker every two hours or less to suicide in our industry. So when I began my research, part of what I did was begin interviewing executives from across the nation, people in the C-suite, asking them what they were doing and where they stood on the topic. Hmm. The first group that I went through and interviewed said, well, we're not doing anything because it's not a problem. They don't know it's a problem. Yeah. As I got into some industry leaders that we purposely targeted because we knew they were doing things. More than half of them said, well, we began a program, but we didn't begin it until after we lost someone to suicide. And then we learned of the numbers. So, you know, I met with a lady today that runs um, pretty prominent um, mental health hospital and facility. She wasn't even aware of the numbers in construction. Oh. She was shocked. It's like this hidden secret that people don't know anything about. So that's kind of the mission I've been on. Is I'm, I'm trying to travel internationally. I've been in Wales and talked on the subject because it's no different in the UK. They have the same right. numbers we do. Austria has the same numbers. It's a worldwide problem. It's not unique to the U.S., we're just trying to raise the awareness and get leaders to say, hey, we've got a problem. Let's do something about it. Right. And obviously the proactivity is far more important than the reactivity of not necessarily more important, but it's better to be proactive than it is to be reactive and wait until somebody does take their own lives to actually do something about it. Exactly. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you've done specifically at Ajax in order to not only raise that awareness, but help employees that may be suffering from mental health issues? January 3rd, I give that talk. Um, we finished the talk. 
And within a week, two ladies in the office uh, came forward and said, hey, we'd like to help you with this. And um, then a third comes forward. So there's about four of us. And uh, we had a couple meetings. And um, what I told them was that people will drink out of a straw, but they can't drink out of a fire hose. So we're not going to do a lot. We're going to start slow. We're not going to push this down people's throats because particularly men don't want to be told what to do. But they will take some guidance and education if they think you're sincere and you're with them. Absolutely. So what we said we're going to do in year one, which would have been 22, I said we're going to do four toolbox talks. And what a toolbox talk is, is that it's a talk you have with a crew, typically out in the field, one day before you go to work that day. And you talk about it. It may be roller safety or it may be crane safety. I said, we're going to do four times this year. We're going to talk about mental health and suicide. Um, we're going to buy some hard hat stickers and give the guy to put on the hard hat because they all like stickers. And that's where we're going to begin. And that's where we began. But within probably a month, another gentleman came forward and, and he said, you know, I left my dad to suicide. I want to be on the committee. So now, you know, we're four or five. We eventually became 11. And wow. we decided uh, we're going to call in a consultant and we're all going to get trained as mental health first aid responders. So we brought a consultant in that trained 12 of us, certified us as mental health first aid responders. And what that did was it taught us what questions to ask, how to ask them, what signs mm-hmm. to look for, what you should say, what you shouldn't say. And at that point, I said, hey, we've got a group. And if I want this to go on after I leave, because I'm in my 60s, I'm not going to be here forever. I got to get out of it. Mm-hmm. We got to have a committee. We got to have a team. So I asked the gentleman that lost his father, hey, would you like to head the program up? Best decision maybe I've ever made. Um, he is off and running with it. Um, he went and got certified to be a mental health first aid teacher. He went and got certified to be a first COG teacher. Um, that group of 12 has now turned into 30. Wow. We have a waiting list of people wanting to get into the program to get certified. Uh, we're getting ready to make it a policy that everyone from the foreman level up will be vital COG trained. That's a two-hour program kind of specific to construction from the uh, University of Colorado. Um, so we've built a network of people because not everybody wants to go and talk to the president. Right. Um, but they will go talk to the plant foreman that they know certified, or they'll go talk to Mandy, our safety director. So we've built this network and the company to where people can go. Um, we've then began uh, spreading our EPA resources that we have, uh, EAP, not EPA, and um, people started using them. People never used them before. People started asking uh, what clinic can I go to? What therapist can I go and talk to? So we've created a culture to where people say, hey, I'm struggling. Mm-hmm. And there's no shame in it. Right. I had a gentleman probably back in May on a Saturday uh, email me. And he said, I need the helpline number. And um, I thought I knew what he meant, but I didn't want to assume. So I emailed him back and said, uh, what number would that be? And he said, I need the helpline number for suicide. 
Um, there's a new national helpline number, 988, that came in. It's been in effect now. This is month 13. Uh, what the 988 number is for is if you're struggling and think you're there, you can call for help. Or if I think you're struggling and I need to come and talk to you and I don't know what to do, I can call that 988 number and they'll give me some guidance. Of Here's here maybe what you need to ask him. Here's, here, they'll give you direction and guidance. So I gave him that number. I hooked him up with our HR people. Mm-hmm. Um, this was on a Saturday. On Sunday, I called him back. He's still struggling. Called him Monday. He's struggling, but now he's got some resources. Tuesday, he sounded a little better. Wednesday, I didn't call him. I wanted to give him a chance to breathe, right? I didn't want to be all over him. And I called him back on Thursday. On Thursday, I thought he won the lottery. Saturday, he was ready to end it. And on Thursday, I thought he won the lottery. So the difference between Saturday and Thursday was he had talked to a therapist twice. Um, he got to where he was through a failing marriage. Sound familiar? Um, his wife had agreed that they would see a marriage counselor and, and try to salvage their marriage. So I'm going to end it until he won the lottery. I called him on July 4th and said, hey, how are you doing? I was checking in. It's a holiday. I'm just seeing how you're doing. And he said, hey, things are better. We're going in the right direction, but we're still not there, but we're working on it. So that's the culture we've created where people will ask. Um, you, you get applauded to some level mm-hmm. um, and thanked. Right. A lot of the construction companies I, I've talked to, and, you know, I, I was at Tampa General Hospital last week doing something with them, and I told them, you know, this even applied to your surgeons. Right, like it it's applies, not industry specific. Yeah, like it applies to my people, safety. In my industry, I'm not sure I want the guy that's holding the paddle directing traffic to be the one that's struggling mentally today any yeah. more than you want the surgeon struggling or any more than you want the guy over investing your money struggling. Yeah. So I said, you have to create an environment to where when the people come in, you just don't give them a hard hat some safety glasses and say, there, you're good to go. Right. You want to create an, a culture where they come in and say, hey, I just learned my brother terminally ill. My mind's a little fuzzy today. And the company says, we don't want you to direct in traffic today. Yeah. We'll put you over here we want to, help. to where you won't hurt yourself and you won't hurt the... But the history of construction is go home and figure it out. And when yeah. you can head straight, come back and maybe we'll have a job for you. Absolutely. Um, a lot of the gr- good construction companies aren't doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. Hey, there will always be some out there that will always do that. But that's part of what we're trying to generate the awareness about. And that day, that Saturday, when I talked to that man, I, I said, do you need some time off? And don't worry, we'll pay you. Because I didn't want him to be off with no pay, and that's only going to make things worse, right? right. And, you know, I, I, some contractors have said, well, how do you do that? I said, in today's environment, with the unemployment rate where it's at, one, it would take me a long time to find somebody to replace him, and I might have to hire two or three people to get the quality of the guy right. I had. So I said, I'm I'm better off selfishly from a money yeah. standpoint. You're saving money by doing that. By paying him to help him get his life right. right. Plus, I said, you know what? All the other people in the company, he's going to tell some of them that, and it will filter through the company. Absolutely. And that we're going to be the company that we've always felt like we've been the company that people want to work for. But I think this has even elevated us to a higher level. And I mean, 
And that's not why we're, we're doing it. I'm, we're doing it because of Mark. Mark, I was the last person to see Mark at work sitting in his car. And when I walked out and waved and smiled and he smiled and he drove away. And uh, three hours later, he had taken his life. He was the office comedian. He was the office clown. Um, you know, I, I think Robin Williams once said that most comedians are comedian because they don't want to make people laugh and they don't want them to feel the pain that they're going through. And Howie Mandel kind of says something along the same lines. Yeah. Um, it's just about trying to help the next person. Absolutely. And it's, yeah. it's, it's very interesting to be having this conversation and with, with the, the mindset that it is obviously very present in other industries. You know, I've, I've had my pilot's license since I was 17 and in aviation, and I, I, you can probably see where this yeah. is going is, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, one of those industries that uh, it's more than taboo because there is a, a medical component to the, the career of this pilot. Where if they tell a doctor, the doctor is going to find out about this. The FA is going to find out the doctor, the uh, pilot's going to lose this job. Yeah. So in the aviation industry, and I've, you know, I've said this to, to many friends before and we have these conversations, it's that a lot of pilots are fearful to talk to a therapist, to talk to a psychologist, to talk to somebody that may be in a position to help them because they feel like it's going to take their job and essentially their career, their safety net away from them. So it's a... Uh, Hey, I, I get it. Again, if you remember, I said I never wanted uh, the owner of the company to know because yeah. I didn't want to lose my job. Yeah. I didn't want to lose the next promotion. Um, so you got to figure out how to change that in the aviation world. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd love to, to talk once we're done with this podcast to see how we could we could come up with some creative way to, I guess, penetrate that industry where it's, again, it's not just a taboo. It's unfortunately something that can be a, a career breaker mm -hmm. for a lot of these uh a lot of these pilots. Um, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about what you've done at Ajax, now how you're going and trying to help other businesses in and out of the construction industry. Have you put together a program that you take to certain companies and offer to help them implement within their companies to help their staff that are maybe dealing with these kinds of issues? To date, I've never been that guy that wanted to go in and do a one-hour training mm -hmm. thing um, because my mission... I'm fortunate that I'm on some national board of directors, the National Asphalt Pavement Association. Uh, I'm tied in with the American Road and Transportation Builders. I'm tied in with the National Utility Contractors. So I have my forum and to educate the C-suite on why we need to do this. With that said, um, I mean, with just within the last week, I've been asked by the Construction Industry Alliance for Suicide Prevention to head up a national group. Uh, I'm going to be looking for nine other contractors that have done something like Ajax and done, and some of them have done things even above and beyond what we've done. And we're putting this group of 10 contractors together, and we are going to become come up with the checklist, one to 10, 20, 30 thing that what really good organizations are doing. Uh, the Construction Industry Alliance is going to have this resource on their website to where companies can go in nice. and use that. Because right now, this is very fragmented. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do, every talk I go and give, I've got a QR code at the end that takes them to a one-page document that I've put together where they can get some resources. Um, there's a you know, psychiatrist in Denver, Colorado that's done a thing. I pushed the Construction Industry Alliance. Somebody has to be a national leader to do this. And they're not doing it because of me. I mean, they, they already had kind of had it going. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's going to be the clearinghouse, I hope, for the uh, construction industry. Um, today, for the first time, I shared the document that I told you, Duncan, that the lead and the Ajax Warrior put mm -hmm. together, and he put together a great, and I would share that if any organization wanted to reach out with me. Hey, it's theirs, and it kind of talks about what we've done, and we give them some guidance. They can have the one-page document that I've, I've done. Um, I've told organizations that I'll come and speak. Um, I'm fortunate that the owner of our company has bought me a lot of airplane tickets and paid for a lot of hotel rooms. Um, I'm not going and getting paid $10,000 to give a talk. I'm not getting paid $10 to give a talk. Uh, a few people have been gracious enough to get me a hotel room while I was in town. So this is not about me trying to build a nest egg for retirement. It's not about right. me trying to line my pocket because when I say I've not taken a single dollar, I've not taken a single dollar. It's just, it's, again, it's about trying to get the C-suite on board of equipment manufacturers. Um, John Deere has been heavily involved in this with me. Dynapack America has been involved. Florida to Transportation, Jared Perdue signed a proclamation that I did. So, no, if, if you're looking for the guy to come in and do some training on how to fix that, I can tell you where to go, but that's not me. Yeah, and I think maybe I, I didn't phrase the, the question the, the right way. Maybe it's more of the, as you said, the, the parameters that a C-suite executive needs to follow in a way to put together a program like this for his own company. Not necessarily to have you come in and, and actually do the training, but for them to understand, you know, a, a program needs to look like this. It needs to contain this. It needs to flow, you know, from the top down and, and for them to really understand what it takes to have a program like this. I do, and in all the talks I do, I show them. I said, it's really this simple. One, say you'll do it. Two, say you'll do four toolbox talks a year. Three, and this is the expensive part, I tell them, you got to spend $100 and go buy some hard hat sticker. <laughs> and the fourth thing, and then just go do it. And it really begins that simple. We began the program in January of 22, like I told you. By March, Duncan's on board. We buy some stickers. We start talking about it. We decided in June, July that we were going to do a toolbox talk around Mark, the employee we lost. And so we took that to the field. The first week of September, this year it's September 4th through the 8th, is Suicide Awareness and Construction. September is National Suicide Awareness, but the first week is construction. So we took that toolbox talk and went to Tampa. I went with our safety director, and we went to three crews that day. The first crew, and there were probably 40 people there, there were several crews there. One of them, I think maybe actually I did the talk at the first one, but then somebody said, we want to tell you about the alcohol intervention we just did for one of the guys. And they were glowing how proud they were of it. We went to the next crew, and an MOT foreman there, he actually did the toolbox talk on that one. And when he got done, I said, my gosh, I wish I would have recorded that. I said, you did. I said, that's what everybody needed to hear. And there was a man on that crew. I didn't know him, but I knew he was new because he had on a green hard hat. In our company, we all wear white hard hats. But in your first 90 days, you get a green one because we want to make sure that we look out for you. We want to make sure we walk into that's the great. company. So green, yeah, you stand out for 90 days, but in a good way, I hope. 
that man wanted to tell us about his father that had taken his life and how he walks every year with a picture of his dad on his back um, to try to raise awareness, to let other people know the pain that his dad put him through. Hmm. We went to the next crew, and a man on that crew wanted to all show us his wrist, where he had tried to slice his wrist. So I tell people all those stories were always there. We just never knew they were there right. because we never told people they could share them. Right. And once they knew that they could share them, you know, nobody laughed at any of those talks that day. Um, big construction guys, there was some hugging. There was some handshaking. But there was no laughing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't a demoralizing or sad thing per se. It was just authentic. Yeah. It was man ca- really caring deeper for man. human connection. Yeah. So Vince, for anybody that could be listening to us right now that might be facing issues like that, what is something you would want them to know? What's something I would want them to know f- from where I w- was at? Um, you know, I, I I interviewed one mother for this book I'm writing, which was part of my research. And then the interview to her, I said, you know, they say that suicide is the most selfish act that an individual can do. And um, she quickly corrected me and said, well, suicide is not selfish. Uh, my pain, son was in so much pain and so much hurt. That was the only way that he knew to get out. Um, and she said he had exhausted all avenues. So I would tell you if you're there and you're suffering, make sure you've exhausted all avenues. And when you think you've exhausted all of them, go find more. Um, I've had so many great things happen in my life after that day that I would have missed. I would have missed seeing my daughter graduate from the University of Florida twice. I would have missed seeing her graduate with her doctorate degree from the University of South Florida. I would have missed seeing my son going into the Army. Um, I would have missed my second wife to my best friend she's become. Uh, I would have missed the opportunity of what I'm doing today to be able to help other people. So as deep and as low as you think you are, and people that decide to take their life don't decide like that. Yeah. It's a journey. My journey was um, 17 years to get to that point. And it was just thing on top of thing because of my weakness for not going to talk. There was a gentleman, Kevin Hines. Kevin jumped off of the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. Um, many, many, many people have died jumping off of that bridge. And when Kevin got up that morning, he said, all I wanted was for one person uh, as I was going to the bridge to say something encouraging to me, to ask how I was, how are you doing? Because I wanted to tell someone and nobody did. And as I jumped off of the bridge and let go of the rail, He said, the last thing I remembered was, in my mind, I said, I don't want to die. And he didn't. And it's very, very, very rare that anyone jumps off of that bridge and lives. And he lived to tell that story. Um, 
don't be Kevin and do something and say, I wish I wouldn't have done this. Because in deep and as low as you may think you are, there's so much more out there that you just have to give yourself the opportunity to get to. Um, you don't, I'm not saying you have to go talk to a therapist. Maybe it's a minister. Maybe it's your best friend from high school. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe, I mean, I don't know who it is. But you can't give up. Just hold on to the hope of how much more you have to offer. Because like me, I feel like I'm making a change. Mm-hmm. Kevin made a change. There are so many stories of people that somehow didn't that are making a difference. So when you're in that deep spot, ask yourself, what can I do to change my life and make a difference? Because you you can on any level. Absolutely. And I know thousands of people are grateful that you decided not to make the that decision on that fateful night and you're here to tell your story and educate them and, and help so many others that are facing the same issues. And I'm so glad that you actually mentioned all the things that you got to experience since that night because my parting question for us was going to be, what are five things that have stood out to you since that night that you're thankful for because that night didn't happen the way that you initially had planned for it to happen? So thank you very much for sharing that. And well, I think I covered more than five. <laughs> I think so, but it's... Uh, well, that's good for people to hear. There's so absolutely. many things, and I'm not done yet. And, and you could, I'm sure you could continue, yeah. and that's the best part. It's that it just, it doesn't end there. There's so much more to experience to your point. It just, it doesn't end there. Yeah. So Vince, thank you so much for being here and for sitting here and talking to us about this, you know, unfortunate reality that we have to face in this industry and in many others. Hey, thank you for the invite and anything I can do for you, let me know. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.